Hello everyone, it's October 4th, 2022. So the Dart spacecraft was blown into a million little pieces, but for once, that's obviously a good thing. This week, we're taking a look at the aftermath of the Dart mission to see, literally and figuratively, what impact it's had on Dimorphos. So let's do it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 379 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So Ben's back. Welcome back. I'm back. Thank you very much. What do we talk about? Um, I could see the Appalachian Trail from my uh, from my hotel window this last week. Where were you? I was in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Okay. So when you say the Appalachian Trail, I guess there is like a specific trail. You mean the trail or just the mountains that the trail yep. runs through? Nope. The actual, I mean, like I couldn't see the dirt of the trail, but I could see the, the tree cut. Like you could see the gap in the trees where the trail was. That's pretty cool. I don't think I've ever hiked it, like any portion of it, even though I've been yeah. in the Smoky Mountains many, many times. Mm. But I did read, um, what was it called? Um, A Walk in the Woods, that book by Bill Bryson, which is really good. Um, if, if you're ever interested in, or just like listen to the audio book because he's, cause he reads his own stuff and it's really, really, it's just really interesting. And, uh, he tries to hike the entirety of the Appalachian Trail and he has a friend with him, but they don't make it the whole way, oh, no. <laughs> but they make, they make most of it. I mean, a good portion of it. And then they skip some parts, but it gets difficult. So he started in like North Georgia and then they made it, I don't know how far up, like up to Virginia. And then eventually they just couldn't keep going, but they hiked some more of it in Maine because it just goes all the way up to, I guess, Maine, somewhere in Northern Maine, I think. Uh, it's a very long trail, but, uh, but it's a very good book if you're interested in anything related to the Appalachian Trail. That's a random non-space-related uh, <laughs> fact, but yeah, the Appalachian Trail. Um, one day I'll walk a little bit of it, I guess. I don't know if I'm going to like full-on hike it, but... Yeah, I, I feel no compulsion to do the entire thing, but I mean, I love hiking. I'll, I'll do a little... <laughs> Dart, I guess um, we had a successful impact. I guess the first ever of this type, just, you know, plowing into a little moon or a little asteroidal moon. The first time uh, it was done to try and change the uh, orbital period and all that. <laughs> Have there ever been like any other impacts that were as... Uh, deep impact. Uh, yeah, like fast or okay, deep impact. Oh, at, that, the, at that, that speed, I mean, some interplanetary crashes certainly were in that, you know, magnitude range but i'm trying to think we haven't really had any like impacts that were to a body without an atmosphere deep impact um what was a messenger going into mercury well i mean something like an asteroid but although not so deep much a impact planet. hit a comet almost okay, exactly yeah. like <laughs> it's like it was designed yeah, it, to it strike and... wasn't deep impact a lot slower than this well maybe slower but i mean i think they went fast but Maybe not yeah. as fast. <laughs> but yeah, very, very cool. And uh, I guess we've all seen the images uh, that were beamed back. And uh, it's about what you would expect it to be, I suppose, you know. And then we got that. <laughs> then there was that last image uh, where, you, yeah. you know, you, like you only got a partial download there uh, yeah. before impact. They they really, they got really close. I think the last image mm -hmm. was like uh, two and a half seconds before impact. Like that was so much closer than I was expecting. My My favorite was just like amateur astronomers from the ground and how awesome the images that they were able to take, let alone just the, the bigger facilities from the ground. Like you could see the whole cloud of debris and everything. It was I mean, obviously the, those are interesting for a different reason, but um, we had talked about whether or not James Webb was going to be able to observe it. And yeah, both mm -hmm. uh, Webb and Hubble 
uh, did observations. And this was the first time that they'd ever looked at the same thing at the same time. Like, obviously, one of the first things that JWST looked at was the Hubble deep field. So, like, they had looked at the same thing, but uh, actually observing something together is really, really a cool joint venture happening there. I heard JWST was technically challenging because I think probably because it's angular uh, motion across the sky while it was happening, being able to track mm. it and expose during that. Yeah, I wonder how how fast or how close to their slew rate, mm. their their maximum slew rate they had to get. That's pretty cool, actually. I'm glad you mentioned that. The impact is distant enough that I wouldn't think it would be that much of a slew rate, you know? It's not only how fast can it move, but how fast can it move while doing an observation? I suppose so, like it, yeah. It, it needs to be very steady that whole time. That's true, because I suppose it's meant for taking images that are much further away. So this is kind of an unusual scenario here. So, uh, yeah, I can see how it might be too fast or too slow. And then, yeah, being able to do so at just the right rate, that could be very, very tricky. So um, some of the ancillary things on this mission uh, were pretty fun. I think everybody knows about Lisha Cube, the light Italian CubeSat for imaging of asteroids, um, which I, I think two weeks ago, uh, the last show I was on, I think we talked about it. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that that was, that that was on there. So, uh, but at, at this point, the photos have been everywhere. So I, I think most people know about that. One really cool thing that I, I realized how little I'd actually looked into the DART spacecraft, but they had a, an experiment on board called the Transformational Solar Array Experiment. Uh, one of the two uh, ROSAs, the, the roll-up solar arrays, had a patch where a, a couple of, of uh, PV cells were replaced with an experimental uh, solar uh, panel type. Um, and I didn't look into it too much. Uh, the, the name is, uh, is yes, Transformational Solar Array. Uh, I will put their final report, a link to their final report in the show notes. Um, I want to learn more about it, but it's, um, they're not just the raw PV cell. There's like mirrors and lenses and things on top of it, which is Oh, yeah, neat. yeah. Looks like it tries to concentrate them, maybe the light on yeah. themselves. Hmm. Yeah. So, so that's pretty cool. It's one of those things that you just love seeing on not irrelevant but it's it's like a, a a mission with something extra that has nothing to do with the mission it's just hey let's you know we've got room on this vehicle let's go yeah. um and it 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 feels really really cool to me i i i didn't know that they even had roses on there in the first place so yeah isn't that cool yeah mm. all right so um as a little bit of a review uh about the system itself i want to talk about what the system used to look like. Now it looks slightly different, <laughs> but um, Dimorphos is tidally locked to Didymus, um, and its orbit is nearly perfectly circular and equatorial, which is very Kerbal uh, of the system. Um, and the the orbital period of Dimorphos around Didymos is uh, 11.92 hours. So it's it's kind of a a wonderful little little uh, model system there uh that that they picked while they were zooming in and i don't mean in the sense of a camera zoom lens <laughs> while while they're zipping in here <laughs> all of the tracking was switched to like autonomous onboard tracking and they actually used um like missile tracking systems 
like obviously they they must have been fairly heavily modified but you know the 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 tracking hardware i'm assuming is descended from uh from actual missiles and then the the software uh is all the <laughs> Chris in the chat says space ITAR. Yeah, this this makes it even more ITAR than usual. But yeah, I, I think the uh, the the maneuvering uh, strategies that they used were uh, were either very heavily descended from missile tracking software, or they actually took missile tracking software and tweaked some some variables. And so while they're while they're screaming in towards the system, at first they can only see uh, Didymus. And what's really interesting is that they didn't tell the the vehicle to aim for the point where Dimorphos should be. They actually just pointed straight at Didymus and that was, that was it. Um, they started looking for Dimorphos at, uh, about 175, col uh, 175,000 kilometers away. So that's, uh, three hours before impact. They actually spotted Dimorphos at 38,000 kilometers away, uh, about 90 minutes before impact. Um, and then they changed the, the targeting software to point the vehicle straight at Dimorphos, uh, about 50 minutes before impact. And I didn't realize this, but they actually had their, their main engine turned on while they were coming in just to pick up a little extra speed. Now, next C is the name of the engine and it's, it's an ion engine. So it's not like they were powering under a, a chemical rocket, but they, they were speeding up as they got close. Now that engine was that, I'm, I'm not too familiar with how exactly it maneuvers. Is that used to actually? Uh, make those slight course corrections during the final hours or moments. Yeah, there are electric engines that do that do vectored thrust. I don't know if Next C does, and I I suspect not. When you need to make those lateral those lateral movements, it really helps to be able to point an engine <laughs> in that direction and actually change, so that you're not having to fire a uh, an attitude thruster. You know, mm -hmm. to the left, really hard to push you to the right. Obviously, those ion engines don't provide a lot of thrust, but if it's far enough in advance, and if you're yeah. 170,000 miles away, then yeah, you probably could. Um, if not, then I guess maybe they were just left on because I don't know how much more speed it would pick up in those final moments. I I'm sure the calculation is out there. I, I don't know what yeah. it is, but yeah, I, I agree with you. Couldn't have been very much. But they, they didn't shut down the ion engine until they were about two and a half minutes away from impact. Um, they, they shut it down so that they could, uh, be assured, uh, of clear images without vibration or anything. But yeah, yeah. like this thing was on until the, the last two and a half minutes. So impact happened at 2314 hours UTC, uh, on Monday. I believe UTC time, it was still Monday. It's before midnight, right? The, the impact, I, I wanted to find some better numbers, but it's not bad. Uh, three tons equivalent uh three tons of tnt equivalent energy was expended um which isn't it isn't that much like you know if you think about this in in comparison to like an earthquake a three ton uh tnt equivalent earthquake is not noticeable by people but you know like <laughs> three tons into a small little moon is quite a bit especially for such a small uh, impact vehicle. The relative speed was something like 6.5 kilometers a second. So, uh, in American terms, that's, uh, 14 and a half thousand miles an hour, which 
is mind bleedingly fast. <laughs> um, Chubby in the chat says, can we assume it's been completely resurfaced and no previous features will be recognizable? No, we can't. So before, uh, before the impact, they had, um, three different uh, scenarios that they were kind of looking at. Uh, one was uh, inelastic collision, uh, which is basically where the two things smack into each other and uh, dimorphos, the, the velocities of each get added together and dimorphos moves and that that's it. Not, nothing else happens. And, and that really only happens if dimorphos is one monolithic chunk uh, of rock, right? Like that, we, we don't think that's going to happen. Um, it just splats then, on the surface. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then the, the two other ones are, are much more likely, but the, uh, the middle scenario, um, I think is what they said w- was most likely to happen, which is called a hypervelocity impact crater, uh, formed with ejecta, which is exactly what, you know, you think of when you think of any crater being formed. Uh, you dig a hole, you take the stuff that was in the hole and you spread it out. What was really interesting to me though, and, and like surprising was the third scenario, which was hypervelocity impact spallation off the backside, which they said was most or was very unlikely. And, and that's, you know, basically, uh, slow mo footage of an apple getting hit by a bullet, right? Where the bullet hits the front end and then comes out the back end and sprays material out. I thought that spallation, I mean, I'm actually not too familiar with the term, but I thought it meant that it hits one end and then that causes like material to essentially fly off the other end because of the kinetic transfer of the energy. Like not necessarily that it comes out the other end, but you know, just something else comes off the other end. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the Newton's cradle adapted for (laughs) asteroids. (laughs) Um, But but yeah, to to go back to Chubby's question, is there any uh, surface like recognizable surface left? And, and the answer is probably. It looks like uh, there was a crater with ejecta. You know, we haven't we haven't gotten like their full analysis and maybe even additional images, but that seems to be the case. And the the predictions, like the the modeling beforehand suggested that at at most you would see like half of the asteroid uh disturbed the other half would have ejecta landing on it um but not unrecognizable um you kind of just smush one hemisphere in a little bit so it, you know i think it really comes down to like the composition uh of the asteroid um and it's certainly not a rubble pile which i think was a possibility uh, until fairly recently, but yeah, we don't know for sure either way, but how cool, uh, is it that, uh, that it might still be reasonably recognizable. And then Chubby also asked about what about energy absorbed by phase transition? What's interesting is not even, um, the DART spacecraft would have undergone much phase transition. The spacecraft is certainly in, you know, little tiny pieces, uh, but it wasn't vaporized or, or at least the vast majority of it wasn't. So you, you can go out there now and there are probably little nuggets of spacecraft, whether or not you'd be able to tell that they were spacecraft is mm. a different question, but they're, they're probably embedded, uh, in the space or in the, in the asteroid and floating around the system now. It's pretty neat. Yeah. So, so if, if the vehicle, um, 
wasn't vaporized. I would be pretty surprised if rock was, but who knows? I mean, there are all sorts of different materials out there, and some of it certainly could have, even with the, the heat sink of the rest of the of the asteroid sitting right there. I don't know. Okay, so like we talked about, they were transmitting uh, photos back the entire time, and the, and the last photo was just two seconds before impact. Uh, you know there's going to be a GIF in the show notes uh, and a link to a high-res video. It's just lovely. Like, how close they got uh, while still transmitting out that last partial image. Like you said, David, they they got cut off uh, about a third of the way through that last image, and it it's kind of lovely, isn't it? Well, actually, so, well, I mean, did we uh, include me talking about how much I love the ground-based assets? Because I, <laughs> I feel like I already talked about it. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, this 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 image of uh, there, there's this gift because this was before uh, uh, Lycia Cube or uh, Lycia Cube. I'm not quite sure how to say it. I hadn't heard it spoken. But um, before that, CubeSat returned any images, and before JWST and Hubble's images of the impact were released, I feel like all we had that was, uh, aside from the uh, dart itself slamming in the, the first-person perspective, were uh, ground-based views, and some of them were really, really good. Atlas, I know, released one uh, that shows this big cloud just go whoosh, and you you can you can see it expand and drift away from the uh bright light that's moving relative to the background stars and uh yeah las cumbres observatory lco also i know had a similar looking awesome gif and then yeah the cubesat photos the, the lichia cube i mean those images are so science fiction the little tendrils it looks creepy see. to me to be honest it really does like, it's moving into like a rip through the fabric of space time or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, it's, it's funny because I didn't think a, a rip in the fabric of space time, but I was like, that looks like a vehicle jumping to warp or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Um, yeah. Really, uh, really ominous in a, in a beautiful sciencey way. Mm. Uh, really, really lovely. And, and, and especially, it's it's nice when you see the ground-based images, which look much more like what I would have expected, which is just like a halo of dust. Mm. Um, actually seeing some structure in there from close up very soon after the impact is, I mean, it's, it's not something I would have, would have predicted. It's very cool. I wonder if you were to get a really good image of that, maybe a couple of images from different perspectives, you could treat it almost like x-ray, x-ray crystallography. Uh, or um, a, a CET scan, a commu- computerized tomography, and like recreate the shape of uh, of dart. You know, I wonder if those if those tendrils are formed by gaps in the spacecraft, sh- or you know, the the shape of the spacecraft shaping that ejecta. Although it's, I think it's probably more likely that it's boulders on the surface near the crater doing that. Uh, or maybe density variations in the crater area. So anyway, um, the, obs- the the post-impact observations are really cool. I have some numbers here. I don't know if these are calculated predictions or if they're actual observations. I, I, I'm trying to remember the time scale that I heard talked about for, uh, for actual like experimental observations. And I, I tend to think they were uh, on the order of multiple weeks, not, you know, not the same week. So the two numbers I have are the orbital speed of Dimorphos being decreased 
by 0.4 millimeters a second, um, and the orbital period of dimorphos being reduced by 10 minutes. So at the, at the top of the segment, when I said that, um, that dimorphos was in an 11.92 hour orbit that is slightly out of date <laughs> by yeah. now but yeah i mean uh the orbital speed was decreased i wasn't sure what the configuration was going to be but they hit they hit dimorphos on its prograde side so they they slowed it down they made its orbit a little smaller um increasing the period or uh, decreasing the period and and decreasing the orbital uh, velocity. Very cool. They're going to be making observations for as long as they can with you know the ground-based telescopes, but I don't think that that'll be good enough, most likely, and that's actually what the HERA mission is for. But that won't launch until, what, two years from now? Um, and then I think it arrives at the asteroid to make observations in 2026. And so that's actually going to carry on the observations to actually determine for real exactly, you know, how it changed the orbit. Because I don't think that the science that we can get now would be good enough. I mean, I mean, it all depends, but that's it was, what... It was good enough to get the baseline measurement, wasn't it? Right, yeah. To make some observations about the changes, yeah. I don't know to what degree of uh, granularity, I guess is the right word. Um, I think that that's what the Hera mission is for. How could the Hera mission know what happened beforehand if the previous observations weren't good enough? It only can view the state. It can't talk about the changes if it didn't know what happened before. But I think that we know we have it pretty well characterized like up until the impact, right? And so the question is, how did it change it? So if we were able to pretty well characterize it before the impact, why wouldn't we be able to pretty well characterize it after the impact? Well, because it's moving away. And so you can only take observations for so long and you won't be able to take ground-based observations for too much longer or at least, you know, for about the next six months or so. And then after that, you won't be able to see it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how, uh, how our observations are going to be limited just based on the, the orbit around the sun. But for sure, Hera is going to be able to answer questions that we like Hera is going to be addressing things like Chubby's question, is the thing recognizable anymore? Um, mm -hmm. Which will be really cool. And it's also kind of neat um, that Hera isn't there right now. The fact that Hera is going to be coming by a couple years later when, you know, the dust has mm -hmm. literally had time to settle is going to be pretty cool. So let's do three short and sweets this week, and Dennis, you will do the first one. Testing begins for first Viasat 3. One of the three satellites that will make up Viasat's next constellation in GEO, the first Viasat 3 entered into flight configuration and began environmental tests for the first time. The trio of satellites will respectively provide broadband communications coverage for the Americas, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and the Asia-Pacific region, with this first satellite to launch on a Falcon Heavy later this year. The combined capacity of Viasat's current fleet on orbit is 500 gigabytes per second, while a single Viasat 3 will be capable of 1,000 gigabytes per second, having some of the largest reflectors ever sent to space, and eight solar panels on a side with a total wingspan of 44 meters. Next up, Hubble may get a reboost. SpaceX recently approached NASA with a concept for reboosting and possibly even servicing the Hubble Space Telescope, possibly as part of the Polaris Dawn mission. The mission would involve the use of either a crewed or uncrewed crew dragon to raise Hubble's orbit to its original 600 kilometer altitude, thus giving it an additional 15 to 20 years worth of life. 
The Crew Dragon may even be able to use a previously installed capture mechanism to perform the maneuver. At this point, details about the possible mission are still being worked out and will require about six months of further study. And then finally, Firefly reaches orbit. So after a failed attempt to reach orbit last year and three more recent launch attempts this past month, Firefly's Alpha rocket has successfully achieved orbit. This test flight, named To the Black, carried several CubeSats that were put into a retrograde orbit with an inclination of 137 degrees. With a payload capacity of 500 to 1,000 kilograms, the Alpha rocket occupies a unique niche among launch companies. This led to its selection by the U.S. Space Force for the Victus Knox mission, which requires rapid payload integration and launch within a 24-hour period. Firefly expects to launch up to six missions in 2023 and is establishing production at its facility in Texas. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. A bunch of winners this week, and they all got bonus points too. Uh, so we have Uncle Willie, VT, Ryan Rigner, Asukar, Chloe, or Chloe, I don't know how to say that. And then Deathkin, the Greek, Cy Kyle, Michael Freeman, and Nathaniel P. So I don't know how many that is, but a bunch. A lot of new uh, entrants too. So yeah. Good job. <laughs> and the clue was, uh, it's already a long enough trip without adding four years. So what is the actual event that this is referring to? Yeah, so the event is October 6th, 1990, and it was the launch of the Ulysses spacecraft. Uh, this is one you may have heard of before. It uh, has kind of a very niche and unique role that is somewhat being replicated only now, you know, 30-some years later with the uh, solar orbiter uh, that uh, ESA has launched. And so... Uh, and, uh, essentially, right, it's, it's, it's a solar spacecraft. And uh, Ulysses, I'll give part of the clue, I guess. Uh, not only did it take a, a while for it to get into its, uh, I guess, operational orbit, which was a very long period orbit, to say the least, but it also, Ulysses is the name of a character who goes on quite a serious journey in uh, ancient Greek myth. It had its genesis as the International Solar Polar Mission, which is fun to say. And this would have seen uh, NASA and ESA collaborating and sending two spacecraft to fly over the south and north poles of the sun. And actually to do that at the same time, uh, which is pretty wild. And the, the key science that the International Solar Polar Mission and ultimately Ulysses, which is the downscoped version where ESA and NASA still work together, but they only launched one spacecraft, is that it's very challenging to get out of the ecliptic, the plane of the solar system that uh, the Earth and Sun define. And so to get to a higher inclination, as well as shave off the 30-some kilometers per second of orbital velocity that Earth has, is essentially impossible just by a direct launch. And so the trick would be to essentially send your spacecraft way out to Jupiter and have a gravity assist that in this case, in the case of Ulysses, throws it down below at a high inclination uh, below the solar system so that it's then inclined. But I'll get to that later. So just a little bit about the spacecraft itself. It is a uh, spin-stabilized box rotating 5 uh, RPM with a couple overhanging balconies uh, sticking out of the sides uh, with some instruments on there and a, uh, an equip equipment platform. And interestingly enough, from one of the sources I looked through, they said that this was the first large 
a spin-stabilized space probe designed by JPL, which I guess makes sense. Uh, JPL had been sending things as long as uh, the United States had been sending spacecraft to orbit. But this, uh, I guess, being a large one uh, and spin-stabilized, the design began in the 80s for a launch. Well, actually, the design might have begun, I didn't look this up ahead of time, but it might have begun even in the 70s because originally this was supposed to launch sooner than 1990, in fact, four years uh, hmm. related to the clue. So, but I'll get to that after I talk about the spacecraft. So anyway, good job, JPL. <laughs> uh, it used uh, hydrazine, hydrazine for its uh, attitude and orbital uh, control subsystem, or uh, AOCS, and um, it had uh, four uh, thrusters uh, on two blocks uh, that were able to have it maneuvering around. Um, that was uh, used for a trajectory correction maneuver near as was approaching Jupiter for that flyby I alluded to earlier, as well as um, for turning to Earth for communications. And one thing it had on board that I'm going to spend an inordinate amount of time talking about (laughs) uh, is what's called a nutation damper. Have you guys ever heard of a nutation damper before? I've heard of nutation, but not a nutation damper, no. Mm, Same here. I've I've heard of nutation because that's an effect that happens to spinning things in space so it happens to planets and moons as well as spacecraft imagine uh you've got your spacecraft and it's well actually i I just like to think of a planet but it's the same principle imagine you got a planet and it's processing okay so that means that it's 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 spin axis is spinning around uh and sweeping a cone around this uh, invisible axis that is its angular momentum axis in addition to spinning around that point and making that cone, it can also wiggle essentially north and south. Like it's it's spinning a smaller little circle as it spins around on that cone. And so that bobbing effectively north and south, that's what nutation is. And so that's something that you don't want your spacecraft subjected to. And so uh, Ulysses was, you know, from fuel slosh or when it would uh, thrust its main engine or do uh, attitude control uh, burns, it, it, that might induce this notation. So they came up with a way to dampen it and get rid of it so that it would be, I guess, pointing uh, in the direction that it wants, they want to. The instruments on board, and there were 12 instruments, uh, they were all the kind of ones you'd expect for this type of spacecraft. Particles, sensors, radio experiments, uh, dust analyzers. Uh, and then there was also a, uh, a boom, a large uh, boom that uh, it folded when the spacecraft launched and then would extend out. And that had the magnetometer as well as a couple other uh, 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 X-ray and gamma ray sensors on there um, and something else. And this boom, okay... If your spacecraft, again, I said nutation is that kind of north-south bobbing that it does as it precesses. Well, if you've got a boom sticking out of the spacecraft, it's going to be wobbling up and down as well as the spacecraft nutates. I guess that's the verb, (laughs) nutates. Um, And so because of that wobbling up and down, it essentially acts like a long pendulum because it's got a long lever arm. It's extending many meters from the spacecraft. And so what they did was they had where it hinges, uh, where it connects back to the spacecraft, where it's connected there, you had this fluid uh, damper, uh, what was essentially a flight qualified shock absorber. And so as far as I can tell, you've got these ball bushings that are enclosed in this, I guess, tube with a silicone fluid in there. And as the uh, boom wants to you know, pendulum and uh, wiggle up and down, 
from the nutation, these bushings get moved in through that fluid, which wants to dampen them <laughs> because you know they're pushing through this fluid and as a result the, the boom doesn't wiggle as much as it would otherwise and it damps out that nutation and so that was uh, uh something that uh is not unique to this spacecraft uh, they've had these kind of things and other uh, systems they usually typically involve some kind of fluid as far as i could tell to uh, try to damp out oscillations but that's a way to stabilize your spacecraft in that one regard to kind of get rid of that mutation so is there a reason why they made this spacecraft spin stabilized i guess the same reason you spin stabilize any spacecraft um to give it the uh well yeah oh. but i mean like there are other ways of stabilizing a spacecraft you don't it, like it doesn't have to be spin stabilized sure, um, sure, sure. so so i was just wondering why they chose that option yeah the design choice instead of yeah going with yeah. gyros and because um, i was wondering if it has something to do with the fact that it's a solar mission maybe i don't know yeah. something to do with the sun <laughs> yeah but, i don't know yeah I, I i don't know about that um it's it it, it wasn't uh it didn't have solar panels on it. Um, it, it used uh, RTGs for power. Mm -hmm. So that's potentially a clue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, actually a pretty good reason, yeah. I don't know why that design choice versus uh, the other ways that you stabilize a spacecraft, mm -hmm. why that is specifically chosen for some missions versus others. So if anybody does and wants to uh, <laughs> send us a, uh, a correction comment or... Yeah, a correction or comment about that. That would be great to hear. Chubby in the chat is pointing out that Galileo and Image uh, also had it, where Image was another uh, of these spacecrafts um, with a lot of details. So it turned out that it still had some of this nutation. <laughs> and um, uh, because this damper uh, system underperformed, and the boom also received uh, uneven solar heating, and so uh, in, in uh, a few, uh, in 1994 and 95, and then it happened again in 2001, and potentially later, uh, the source I had, uh, 2001 was in the future. Um, but uh, they got around it using a different sort of methodology that is fairly common. And so it's called ConScan or conical scanning. And so this can be used uh, uh, more than just dealing with spacecraft, but it's, it's, it's a way of positioning, or, or in, in this case, knowing the relative orientation of your spacecraft by essentially knowing that your signal that you're getting from it is not lined with the spin axis of the spacecraft. So if you look at Ulysses, the first thing I'm sure that jumps out at you is you see the giant high gain antenna sitting on top of it, right? This thing's going out to beyond uh, 6 AU, so it can be quite far from, or sorry, it goes out to about five, over 5 AU, so it's very far from the Earth. You need to have that high-gain antenna. And then, like uh, we had talked about on earlier episodes, uh, a lot of times you put your low-gain antenna uh, sort of at the top of your high-gain antenna, uh, kind of where the receiver for the high-gain is, and so you have your little smaller low-gain sticking out at that top part there. So with this con-scan or conical scanning method, you angle that low-gain antenna by a uh, less than 2 degrees in this case. It was 1.8 degrees offset from the spin axis of the spacecraft. And as a result, when you were having the low-gain communicate to Earth, the signal strength would modulate with each spin. And this is 5 RPM. And so based on that, you can track out just how off you are because it's you're no longer limited to just the you know you know the spacecraft's orientation within the beam width of your low gain antenna but in this because this is a directional low gain instead you you kind of see 
because that low gain signal is increasing and decreasing, you can tell, oh, it must be, well, if it's 1.8 from the spin axis and I'm seeing the signal change such and such a way, I get a more accurate value of what direction the spacecraft is pointed. That, I, I thought that was a cool system and has a lot of applications going you know, back to missiles and I, I think with uh, radar, uh, trying to pick out spacecraft, they might spin the radar, or not spin around, but essentially, yeah, like rotate the radar in a little circle. And so you can get more accurate than just the beam width of uh, your your signal. So that's, uh, again, a lot about that mutation damper. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, uh, like I said, it was RTG powered. And if these numbers are correct, which I have no reason to doubt, I thought this was very interesting is that your source of heat that drives the uh, the RTG, if you take out the, all the electronics that ch- turn that heat into electrical energy, then you have just a radio heating unit. And uh, this RTG on Ulysses was evidently generating... 4,500 watts of thermal energy, of which 280 watts uh, were turned and, uh, you know, I guess converted, transduced into electrical energy, where that number reduced down to 250 watts at the end of its nominal mission. But I think they went quite beyond the uh, extended mission, or or that nominal mission lifetime. So that just kind of shows, I guess, the uh, uh, inefficiencies of trying to capture that thermal energy and use the... uh, a little Seebeck effect to convert it into an electrical uh, energy. And I had to mention this, uh, right, with all the instruments uh, doing the kind of, you know, plasma and particle sensing and all that, because we talked, when I talked about Geotail <laughs> a couple of months ago, and that had these crazy wire booms coming out really, really long distance uh, to serve as antennas. Uh, well, this one had 72.5 meter tip to dip wire boom <laughs> as part of its, uh, its sensor package. And so 72.5 meters is very, very long. So how did it actually get there? Well, it was originally going to launch on Challenger uh, back in May of 1986. But unfortunately, of course, because of the Challenger uh, disaster at the beginning of that year, uh, it was delayed. And that's where the ultimately the clue all comes together. Uh, it's already a long enough trip without adding four years. And so that's where those four years come from. And then the long trip is just the fact that it's on this large orbit around the sun that takes it out uh, to 5AU. And so um, not only did that delay come from the uh, shuttle being grounded, but it was originally going to have the uh, shuttle Centaur, uh, the the Centaur G-Prime, serve as the upper stage that would take it to Jupiter for that gravity assist. And so this, uh, after... Challenger, the idea of having a Hydrolox rocket in your payload bay was kind of ruled out as just being far too dangerous. And so uh, that was the end of that. And so instead, they had to come up with what I I call the super stack. But it was kind of everything in the kitchen sink as far as rocket motors, solid rocket motors (laughs) to go and try to, I guess, serve as the substitute for a shuttle Centaur. And it turned out that this resulted in Ulysses on STS-41 being the heaviest payload that shuttle had uh, to date at that point in 1990, uh, uh, weighing over 117 metric tons, uh, the vehicle with the payload. And so the super stack consisted of the uh, inertial upper stage, IUS, that flew a lot of things uh, in shuttle back in the day. And uh, that's a two-stage solid rocket. But then on top of that, you put a PAM. Uh, a PAM-S, where S is special. This was a unique PAM that was designed specifically for Ulysses, it sounds like. And so that's a payload assist module. And that was another 
thing that uh, shuttle missions would have as its upper stage. And so you kind of combine the two of them. And so even after getting to uh, release from the payload bay, you still had three more uh, rocket steps that would take uh, Ulysses to orbit. And so there's really uh, nice uh, images of the deployment from the shuttle. Uh, but there's also some really great artist renderings that I really, really like. Uh, they go in a lot of detail and kind of just show you just how much stuff there is <laughs> just to carry this little, I mean, by comparison, this relatively small uh, spacecraft to uh, get out to Jupiter. And so uh, it, it took quite a lot of heating to get up there. Uh, one thing that I uh, had noticed when uh, you look at the image of the uh, of Ulysses sitting on top of the uh, the PAM and IUS, is that there's a support truss <laughs> sticking out uh, of the top of the IUS. And it looks to me like it might be doing two things. I wasn't able to track this down, but it sounds like uh, if, if, you know, Ulysses has RTGs sticking out, as they often do, because you want to keep that uh, heat away from some of the more sensitive instruments that might not like it. And so it looks like that it might be providing structural support uh, just another point uh, of maybe connecting to the RTG and kind of uh, reducing the loads that are on it. Uh, you know, I guess the bending loads that it would have during launch. Because um, like I said, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of staging that this thing has to, the spacecraft has mm -hmm. to experience. Uh, but then if you look at this artist rendering, at least, it also looks like there's some sort of uh, uh, umbilical or a couple little pipes that run up this truss. And so maybe that was a way of bringing... Uh, power and uh, some uh, connections to the spacecraft from the rest of the uh, upper stage vehicle. Yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly makes sense that it would be supported during launch just because it's so, you know, heavy. I mean, I don't know how much an RTG weighs, but they've got to be incredibly dense, right? So, mm. I mean, it would be dangerous to have it just sticking out like that. It's flopping like that. Yeah. So, uh, shuttle gets to orbit. Uh, they have to change the attitude because uh, once they finally know where they are, uh, ground control needed to make a few last-minute corrections for the uh, the attitude of the uh, IUS and PAM uh, to kind of send that signal up to them before it was released. And then after it was deployed, uh, this mission, which uh, was only a four-day mission, they really just got up there. They had some other uh, secondary payloads uh, experiments on board, but really it was there to uh, get uh, Ulysses uh, on its way. And so uh, Dick Richards was the commander. He does this negative X back-off maneuver to put some separation. Uh, after 15 minutes, there's now enough distance for them to fire the Ohms engines and maneuver even further away to get 40 miles uh, away before the first stage of the IUS fires. And interestingly, a cylindrical object was observed that they think was essentially a piece of ice, like a long kind of curved piece of ice. But I imagine if you're a UFO person, uh, this is just this is just red meat to uh, there being <laughs> UFOs uh, on orbit. So if you if you want to check out the uh, the post flight video for STS forty one, you can see what they're talking about with that. And so uh, the IUS uh, fired both of its uh, motors uh, one after the other. Uh, it had a control system for navigating or, and guidance. I guess that was all fine. But then uh, I didn't realize this about the PAM. Uh, S motor, this one was unguided to really make sure that they were firing in the direction uh, that they stayed in the direction, <laughs> stayed pointing in the direction they wanted to go. Uh, they actually spun up the spacecraft and uh, PAM S to 80 RPM. So spinning 
uh, faster than once per second. And, uh, and then fired the PAM. It went in the right direction. Everything turned out great. And then they did the good old yo-yo uh, method of de-spinning the spacecraft afterwards to get back to that more leisurely 5 RPM. And so at the time, this was the greatest injection velocity ever achieved by a human-made object. We want to talk about kilometers per second some more. This one got up to 41 kilometers per second by the time that PAM was done doing its job. So that's quite fast and has only been exceeded by New Horizons, which got up into the 50s uh, kilometers per second, which is pretty incredible as well. But that was, of course, several decades later. And so, yeah, so as far as the mission itself, it got up to... Jupiter uh, a couple years later in 1992, uh, got within uh, 6.3 Jupiter radii and did lots of science in while it's there mm. <laughs> with the uh, Jupiter has uh, a absolutely gargantuan magnetosphere. So it was going to be checking that out. And um, with that uh, gravity assist, it wound up being inclined uh, 80.2 degrees to the solar equator. So they did a damn good job of being able to catch those yeah. higher latitudes yeah. <laughs> and so and that that final orbit was uh had a, a perihelion of 1.3 au and a, a aphelion of 5.4 au it wasn't gonna go over the north pole first it actually would just the way that they uh, uh sent the spacecraft uh, and had it do its uh assist from jupiter it actually did a, a south polar pass first um going over the south pole of the sun and this was in uh late 1994 and then about a year later, uh, it would then go over the North Polar Pass in 1995. And so that was the first solar orbit. And then you got to wait until the year 2000. And then it does the same thing. It passes under the solar, the South Pole, and then over the North Pole. And then they, uh, based on the calculations for the RTG, they figured, oh, we have enough uh, uh, electricity as well as heat. Because um, that was a big thing. They had to dump out this, or keep the spacecraft warm while it's in deep interplanetary space. And so they did extend uh, the mission to get a third pass. And so from 2007 to 2008, it again flew past uh, the South Pole and past the North Pole. And um, it's still, you know, beyond an AU when it was doing these passes. So this is very different than something like a Parker Solar Probe that's diving in as close as you can get. But for decades, this has been uniquely the uh, high uh, latitude, uh, all, uh, basically, Almost everything we know about the sun, uh, direct measurements of the latitude, uh, high latitudes comes from, uh, came from Ulysses. And uh, it, had a, it had a lot of stuff going on. Apparently, it couldn't get away from comet tails. It inadvertently flew through two of them huh. um, <laughs> just because, I guess, you know, there's, there's comets cruising around and they have these long tails. And, uh, yeah, Ulysses happened to go through a couple of them. And it happened to get by, uh, past near Jupiter uh, at some point during its mission after the initial flyby. Nothing like the close pass it had before, but it was still able, again, because Jupiter's magnetic uh, field is just so gigantic that it was able to take useful scientific measurements then. But over time, the RTG declined. It wasn't going to get a fourth solar orbit, and the mission itself ended at the end of June 2009. And so that was the end of Ulysses, which I guess is still uh, frozen and not operating or transmitting or doing anything. It's just a hunk of metal, but a very cool hunk of metal in a heliocentric, a very highly inclined heliocentric orbit. Yeah. And so, in any event, that was your uh, This Week in Spaceflight History. So, yeah, that's a pretty cool mission. And, and I'm interested to know, because I still can't figure it out, but I've never thought why spin stabilize as opposed to mm -hmm. other forms of stabilizing a spacecraft. I mean, like we obviously know the benefits of it. It's It seems mostly just for simplicity, although that's you what, do have those little oscillations. So That's what yeah, I was going to say, all right, as, as far yeah. as 
the positives. You don't have to worry about uh, equipment failing and then mm -hmm. putting the kibosh on it. Spin stabilization is nice because you don't have to think about it. You don't have to have computers doing things, but... Yeah, it's it's a simplicity trade-off in it. With that, uh, we will move on to the clue for next week. And the date range is the 11th through the 17th of October. And Ben, do you have a clue for us? Yep. Uh, next week in 1968, the clue is Phoenix Rising. I have a feeling that I've already done the clue Phoenix Rising exactly before. <laughs> so, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you want uh, bonus points, you have to explain the clue. You can't just guess the event. I mean, if you guess the event, you get you get credit. But uh, if you want the fullest credit possible, explain explain my clue to me. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events because there is a lot of them this week. Uh, we got like I don't know seven or something. So Dennis, what's the first one? Kicking things off, we got a biggie. It is a Falcon Nine Block Five that will be taking Crew Five to station. And so that's right. We I believe it talked about it before. Oh, yeah, because there was a delay because of Hurricane Ian. And so, yeah. So this is a crew of four uh, commanded by Nicole Mann with uh, Josh Cassida, Koichi Wakata, and Anna Kikina, uh, the latter two from JAXA and Roscosmos, respectively. Um, all are rookies except Koichi, who, just like uh, Soichi Noguchi, uh, will be uh, a JAXA astronaut that had flown on shuttle and then Soyuz and now yeah. Crew Dragon. So uh, very cool variety there. And uh, that... Launch will be on Wednesday, October 5th at 1600 UTC, flying out of the Cape at Launch Complex 39A. And the fun doesn't stop there, though, because NASA will be having coverage of the docking and hatch opening. And so check out NASA TV the next day on October 6th, uh, Thursday, at 4.57 p.m. Eastern. That is when the coverage of the docking will begin. And... Um, the opening of the hatch is scheduled for 6.42 p.m. Eastern, and then some welcoming remarks a couple hours later, uh, all on NASA TV. All right, next up is going to be It Argos Up From Here, which is a, a, an amazing pun that just lined up. Uh, this is a rocket lab launch uh, for the General Atomics Electromagnetic Systems uh, vehicle called uh, Gazelle, which on board <laughs> has a payload called Argos 4 Advanced Data Collection System, or ADCS. So this is um, just a, an, an incredible name to pull out of <laughs> the, uh, the the Argos system. Um, so, of course, this is uh, an electron launch. Um, it's going to be flying out of uh, the Mahia Peninsula on Wednesday, October 5th at 1700 hours UTC. The window continues to 1800 hours uh, UTC. And then after that, on October 6th and 7th, so we're kind of straddling two dates there, we have the launch of a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that is the launch of Galaxy 33 and 34. So these are two geostationary communication satellites that are manufactured by Northrop Grumman and operated by Intelsat. This launch will be from 2307 UTC through 2414 UTC, and it's launching from Cape Canaveral Space Launch Complex 40, or Slick 40. So uh, you can always check that out on SpaceX's channel or wherever you'd like. And at least it's not a Starlink, although I'm sure there's probably one coming up. <laughs> and then next up, also on October 6th, we have a uh, a Long March 2D, which uh, if you sometimes have trouble keeping track of all the various Long Marches with uh, numbers and different 
different numbers and different letters. Uh, this is the uh, one that has hypergals. And as I recently learned on Twitter, uh, uh, hot stages, the upper stage. So it fires uh, hmm. before it releases the, uh, before it cleanly separates from the first step. So that's a, a fun thing that uh, I learned about. A lot of these long marches do it. This, uh, again, is October 6th uh, with a window from 2332 to 2359 UTC, and it'll be taking the Advanced Spaceborne Solar Observatory, or ASO-S, uh, which is a pretty cool, uh, looks like a space telescope, a solar telescope, and it'll be heading out to Sun Synchronous, and the rocket will be flying out of Juchuan, which is the launch pad that's in Inner Mongolia. After that, the list continues. <laughs> After that uh, is going to be the launch of RAISE 3, which stands for Rapid Innovative Payload Demonstration Satellite the third um it is uh, <laughs> a, a demo satellite with um seven different um experiments on board uh from a bunch of different people that they're putting all on one vehicle and, and sending it to space collecting the data and then distributing it back out to those customers um, this is being launched by jaxa on their epsilon vehicle this is going to be flying out of Ochinura uh, in Japan, obviously, uh, on Friday, October the 7th at 24, 27 hours UTC. That window continues. Uh, it's a very short window, uh, 24, 58 hours UTC. So like 11 minutes uh, for this launch window. After that, on October 7th, we have the launch of Smart Dragon 3. A launch vehicle launched by the Chinese Rocket Company, I think is the name. Is it China? China Rocket Company? China Rocket Company. That's who's doing the launch, and the payload is unknown. Um, it's uh, thought that maybe it might be sent to space one S5 and 6 satellites, which are part of a larger constellation, which is a GNSS, uh, so Geostationary Navigation Satellite Constellation. Apparently, it's meant to in enhance... Uh, GPS systems or their own particular global navigation system. And it also has uh, laser communications of some sort. So apparently they can talk to each other by that means, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, this is all speculative, so I'm not sure about that. But um, that is what the payload is thought to be. The launch time for that will be, um, again, on October 7th uh, from 1310 UTC to 1339 UTC. So a about a half hour launch window. And I don't know if you're going to be able to watch that, but it is interestingly launching from Tai Rui, which is a launch platform. Uh, so not actually launching from land. Uh, it looks like, it looks kind of like an old, I guess one of those, um, uh, the oil platforms you see out in sea. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was a converted version of one of those or something. I don't know, but that's where it's launching from out in the middle of the ocean. So pretty cool. Uh, and again, this is being done by the China Rocket Company Limited. So not a uh, typical launch. Not on a long march. And so we're not done with events, but we're done with launches after this one, at least. And so <laughs> we have, uh, we've talked about this one a lot before. This is ABL Space Systems RS-1-1 rocket. Uh, looking, still trying to do its maiden flight. And so this will be out of the Pacific Spaceport Complex in Alaska with a launch on October 10th with a window from 2200 UTC to the next day at 0130 UTC. And so... Fingers crossed. Uh, good luck and Godspeed, ABL. And finally, we finally got to the end of the list. <laughs> uh, on Tuesday, uh, we have a, a news conference uh, from NASA. Um, so I'm not 100% sure. I kind of suspect that this is a news conference from the ISS, which 
happen all the time and are usually really boring. Uh, but this is listed as Johnson Space Center. So I mean, like that would agree with that as well. But who knows? It might be folks on the ground talking about uh, talking about the mission, which could also be cool. So they're calling it uh, the SpaceX Crew Dragon Crew 4 Pre-Departure on-orbit news conference. So yeah, I guess it is uh, uh, an on-orbit interview. Um, this is going to be happening on Tuesday, October 11th at 1155 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, the NASA TV YouTube channel is the probably the easiest way to, to go watch that. Okie doke. Those, all of them, are your upcoming <laughs> spaceflight events. So after all that, let's deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dog for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Deathkin, Mike, Ken, Chubby, E.T., The Greek, and Chris, a.k.a. Sly Garfield, for joining our recording sessions today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. You can talk directly to us by email info at So that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.